makes an effective horror film? It's a good question. To me, it is when the horror in the movie lingers. So I'm not just talking about the scares that you see in the movie, things that make you jump. I'm talking about what you take home with you after the movie is over, or say once you've turned off the TV. With that definition in mind, suddenly the amount of good horror films I've seen over the years diminishes tremendously. I think one of the reasons is that very quickly once a horror film does something and then somebody copies it it's no longer fresh it no longer makes you think so the movies i find most horrifying are the ones that do inject novelty that are not the same as the ones before it when halloween 3 season of the witch came out and i learned that michael myers wasn't going to be in the film i was disappointed and i had no interest in seeing it when i finally did see it I found it very unsettling. In particular, I found the idea of using masks to kill people a very novel way to get scares. To that end, as a kid, wearing a mask, especially a rubber latex mask that went over my entire head, suddenly filled me with a certain sense of dread and claustrophobia. It went so far as to hinder my adoption of cooler masks as time went on. And in my life, I've only owned one latex rubber mask of a hobo. And I wore that for half a Halloween when it became overwhelming. I could still smell that smell that you get when your face is in one of those for long periods of time. Maybe I would have felt this sense of claustrophobia with the mask if it wasn't for Halloween 3. But before Halloween 3, I never even thought of such things. And I had thrown on friends' masks and run around their house. This was different. Suddenly I had a very graphic vision of what wearing a mask could do, and I didn't like it. On today's show, I'd like to talk to you about a movie that probably made mask wearing difficult for quite a few people. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. We'll talk about its production, the people in front of and behind the camera, its reviews and reception, its performance, its music, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Halloween 3 is a 1982 horror film with a lot of science fiction and fantasy elements in it that was directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. As you might have guessed by the name, 
This is the third movie in the Halloween franchise, and is the first movie to not have Michael Myers in it, the killer in the first two films. After doing Halloween 1 and 2, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who worked on the first two films, didn't want to do a third film. And Deborah Hill had come up with this idea that they could bring witchcraft into a movie during a more modern age. They thought they would explore this theme and find a director to maybe work on it. That person originally was Joe Dante. Joe Dante is a very popular director. You might know him as the director of Gremlins, amongst many other things. Dante suggested that they hire British screenwriter Nigel Neal, who had worked on a lot of the old horror Hammer films. He wrote the first script. That script would be altered by both John Carpenter, creator of the original Halloween, and the director of the film, Tommy Lee Wallace, enough that Neil would ask to get his name removed from the film. According to Wallace, Nigel had some lousy experiences in Hollywood. From his perception, as a general rule, Hollywood had mangled his stuff. When he turned in his screenplay, any criticism that we gave him was going to be met with resistance. Despite the changes, about 60% of what you see on the screen is from Neil. At the time, Joe Dante was in demand, and another project had come along, and he moved on to that and backed off of Halloween 3. That's when John Carpenter tapped Tommy Lee Wallace to direct the film. This was the directorial debut of Tommy Lee Wallace. It might have been his directorial debut, but this was not his first Halloween movie. He had been the art director and production designer for Halloween the original, and when Halloween 2 came around, he declined to direct that, even though he was offered it. This would be a start of a good career. Wallace would go on to direct movies like Fright Night Part 2 and the TV miniseries of Stephen King's It. According to one of the stars in the movie, direction under Wallace was quite enjoyable. Stacy Nelkin said in an interview, The shoot as a whole was fun, smooth, and a great group of people to work with. Tommy Lee Wallace was incredibly helpful and open to discussion on dialogue or character issues. John Carpenter would work as a producer on the film, along with Deborah Hill. John Carpenter created the original Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, a legend in horror and science fiction. Deborah Hill was an early collaborator with John Carpenter, starting in 1975, where she worked as the script supervisor on Assault on Precinct 13. She would produce and write many films, including Halloween, The Fog, Halloween 2, Escape from New York, and Escape from L.A. Filming began in April of 1982, and the majority of the filming was done around Lolita, California, although there were significant shots in Sierra Madre and L.A., of course. The film itself takes place in 1982, chronologically from Saturday, October 23rd to Sunday, October 31st. The film begins with a chase along a road. The man being chased is Harry Grimbridge, and he's being chased by some mysterious men. He makes it to safety, briefly, and is brought to a hospital where he meets Dr. Daniel Chalice, played by Tom Atkins. Chalice has a bit of a drinking problem, also a lot of problems with his personal relationships. Harry Grimbridge is murdered, and his murderer sets himself on fire. Dr. Dan, Daniel, meets Harry's daughter, Ellie, who talks about the events that led up to him winding up in the hospital, and Daniel shows her the mask that Harry was holding. They trace this mask back to a company based in Santa Mira, California, called Silver Shamrock Novelties. Santa Mira was also the 
setting for the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, which is an interesting parallel. There's definitely this idea of horror and science fiction being merged in both of these movies. The movie from there progresses as Daniel and Ellie try to figure out what the Silver Shamrock Company is up to. And it is beyond bizarre. It involves Stonehenge and children's masks with bits of Stonehenge in them and a TV commercial that is going to play for Silver Shamrock's big giveaway. And when that happens, the fragment of Stonehenge in a microchip does some crazy stuff and basically kills the children. Daniel does his best to stop this and for the most part does it. The film is left on a cliffhanger though as he calls the television stations to stop them from broadcasting this very frightening commercial on all the television stations and we really don't know if they successfully do it. There is a novelization of the film. In that novelization we learn that Dan Chalice failed and that thousands of children have died because of his failure. That would have been terrifying. The ambiguous ending was hard enough, and the studios didn't even like it that much, which might explain some of the poor support they got for promoting the film. There's a lot of great character actors in Halloween 3, very talented people, starting with Tom Atkins, who plays Dan Chalice. Atkins had appeared in John Carpenter's The Fog and Escape from New York. He would also appear in movies like Night of the Creeps, Lethal Weapon, and Maniac Cop, amongst many others. He's a great sort of beefy guy. I don't know how else to describe him. He looks like the type of guy who might drink a lot, might also punch it in the face if you say the wrong thing. It's very ideal casting for this character. Stacey Nelkin played Ellie Grimbridge. Nelkin has had a lot of TV roles. I'd seen her in a few films and TV shows myself, including things like The A-Team and Chips. According to the internet, she's best known for the soap opera Generations as Christy Russell. It's a show I've never seen, so I'll have to take their word for it. According to Nelkin, the Woody Allen film Manhattan was based on her relationship with Woody Allen who she met on the set of Annie Hall, where she had a bit part that was cut, and they began a relationship when she was 17, and Alan was 42. Alan did acknowledge that they dated for a time. Dan O'Herlihy played Connell Cochran, the main villain of the film. It's hard to know how to describe his character. He really chews the scenery as Connell Cochran, and it's unclear what his character is. What is his purpose except for to cause mischief and mayhem? which makes him a very interesting villain, and you can see why an actor would have a lot of fun playing this role. O'Herlihy, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you might know him for his work in RoboCop, where he played the old man, and in Twin Peaks, where he played Andrew Packard. If you like older films, he's in the 1954 version of The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, which was the first Robinson Crusoe that I saw. 
I enjoyed watching that often on Sunday afternoon movies. Rounding out the cast, you had Michael Curry as Rafferty, Al Berry as Harry Grimbridge, Nancy Loomis as Linda Chalice, Dick Warlock, who had played Michael Myers in Halloween 2, plays one of the assassin androids. These assassin androids in the film are very lifelike and bizarre. Also, when you kill them, this orange goo comes out of them, which was actually concentrated orange juice. The voice that you heard of the announcer in the Silver Shamrock commercial is that of the director of the film, Tommy Lee Wallace. Halloween alumni Jamie Lee Curtis also makes a small appearance doing some voice work. There's a lot of other people in the cast, but that covers most of the main characters. The sound of a Halloween film is great because John Carpenter is involved. He does these great electronic synth soundtracks. Halloween 3 is no different. It was composed by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth. The way that music was composed for Halloween 3, as explained by Howarth, is very interesting. It's done completely with synthesizers, and the film is transferred to a time-coded videotape, and this videotape is synchronized to an audio recorder. Then while they watch the film, they compose the music to those visuals. This means that that process goes very quickly and allows them to evaluate the score as it's synced to the actual picture, which might explain why it's so effective in the film. The thing that everybody remembers about Halloween 3 is the Silver Shamrock jingle, which is set to the tune of London Bridge is Falling Down and counts down the number of days until Halloween. Beginning at day eight, they chose London Bridge because it was in the public domain, so they wouldn't have to pay anybody. And that theme would be played a total of 14 times in the film. Eight more days till Halloween. The soundtrack was released on vinyl by MCA Records back in 1982. This would get followed up with a CD, and eventually an expanded 25th anniversary edition would be released in 2007. Halloween is different than Halloween 1 and 2, and Halloween 1 and 2 weren't universally loved, so it might not surprise you that there were a lot of negative reviews for Halloween 3. Roger Ebert famously put it on a list of movies that he strongly disliked, and publications like Cinema Fantastique called it a hopelessly jumbled mess. One of my favorite arguments and counter-arguments for the film has to do with Roger Ebert trying to explore the logic of the film. Basically, he asks, What's Cochrane's plan? Kill the kids and replace them with robots? Why? Trying to understand the motivation and strangeness of the film can be difficult. So in 2013, when a question about the connection between Stonehenge and laser beams and computers was asked of Wallace, Wallace had the ultimate dismissive response where he said, It's magic, man. And that can really explain a lot about this movie. It's unsettling because it's actually hard to understand. One of the harder parts of it to understand is its nihilistic ending, and he had an opportunity to change it. The company they were working with, Universal, saw the film and didn't like that ending. They brought this to John Carpenter, and John, being a director himself, went to Tommy Lee Wallace and said, hey, this is your film. What do you want to do? It was at this point that Wallace said, well, we're going to leave it as it is. Unfortunately, according to Wallace, he thinks that that decision might have doomed the film and weakened the marketing campaign around it as the 
studio didn't believe that a film that had such a dark or bleak ending could go on to make big money. It would earn back its money, and the weekend it opened, Halloween 3 was the number two film, making $6.3 million. It would go on to gross $14.4 million in the U.S. on a $2.5 million budget. I think a lot of people look at it as a because several other horror films were released in 1982 that performed a lot better, including Friday the 13th Part 3 and, of course, the much bigger film Poltergeist. But Halloween 3 did good its opening weekend in October. It was up against some other pretty great films, including First Blood, which only beat Halloween 3 by a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Then you had films like An Officer and a Gentleman, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, My Favorite Year, Pink Floyd the Wall, Rocky 3, Annie, and Night Shift. First, Halloween 3 would get a VHS release. This would be followed by a CED and Laserdisc release. Eventually, it would get a DVD release in 1998. This would be followed by various special edition releases before ultimately landing a Blu-ray release through Shout Factory, who do some of the best horror movie releases. It would get a re-release by Universal as a more bare-bones Blu-ray as recently as 2015. Unfortunately, since the film wasn't a huge hit, the idea of doing independent Halloween films under a franchise that have different stories each time was killed. And when they would eventually do another Halloween film, Michael Myers would return as the main villain. After these messages, we will return. This morning, Billy looked like any other boy, but as the moon rose, he turned into a werewolf. He used new Pa's Halloween makeup kits. His friends did, too. Look, Mike's a vampire. Amy's a ghost. Pa's makeup is safer than masks. It never blocks vision, and it's hypoallergenic, too. So watch your kids turn into the creatures they really are with new Pa's Halloween makeup kits. And now, back to the show. One of the more interesting merchandising opportunities in the film were the masks. These were created by Don Post. Post had already done mask work, tie-ins with other films, and so they would have the exclusive merchandising rights to the three masks that were produced for the film, which were referred to as the Big Halloween Three which is funny because the name of the film is Halloween 3. They are constantly being advertised in the movie. Two of those were masks that were altered but were already made by Don Post Studios, The Skull and The Witch. The third, which they made exclusively for the film, was The Jack-O-Lantern. When these masks finally hit the market, they weren't cheap. They were $25 each, which priced them out of some people's range, although... I don't know if I could have put on that pumpkin mask and felt very safe or comfortable at the time. I would have been nervous. 
because this is an 80s film, the script was adapted as a novelization, which was released in 1982 by Dennis Etchison, who was writing under the pseudonym Jack Martin. The book actually sold well and was reissued in 1984, which makes it a little easier to find compared to other novelizations. As I've mentioned before, there are quite a few podcasts now about movie novelizations that go into great detail on these things because the novelizations are often very different from the book. I would suggest if you are a fan of this universe, you do pick up the book or at least listen to one of these podcasts about Halloween 3. Things like the novelization implies that Cochrane actually lives through the magic of Stonehenge, where we can only imagine he will get more pieces of Stonehenge and do some other crazy caper that would have been in Halloween 4 or 5 or 6. Who knows? Halloween 3 is one of those films that really grows on you. It's not a fast-paced film, but it is chock-full of mythology and symbolism that only through repeated watching can you really get into. I like to compare it to another horror classic, The Wicker Man, a movie that is terrifying, yet the pace of it can be a little slow and not what you expect, but the end result is equally bleak. So if you're looking to change things up this Halloween, you want to watch a horror movie that might make you feel a little uneasy, or maybe one you haven't watched 30 or 40 other times before, why not check out Halloween 3 Season of the Witch? Although, if you're like me, you're not going to be anywhere near a mask when this movie's on. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. society in every time has had its masks that suited the mood of the society from the mask ball to clowns to makeup people want to act out a feeling inside themselves angry sad happy old it may be a sad commentary on present-day america that horror masks are the best sellers this has been a retrospective production goodbye